Praise the Lord. Good. Would you join with me in Acts chapter 11? Acts chapter 11. He coached the New York Mets in their early days and put up with an awful lot of frustration from that low-performing baseball team. In right field, he had a young man warming up who simply could not catch simple pop flies or field ground balls as assistant coaches prepared them for a game. So he called the young man in and gave him the bat, and he took his glove, Casey did at the age of about 69, and went out to right field to demonstrate how to catch a fly ball and how to field ground balls from right field. Well, when the ball was hit, he, uh, he dropped the ball. And when it uh, came to him as a ground ball, it went between his legs. It, he did this over and over again, and he got so frustrated, he threw the glove down. He went up to the young man, and he said, Son, you have messed up right field so badly, now no one can play it. <laughs> I must say to you that there is a similar reality in the Christian faith. The word Christian has been messed up so badly, very few people can use it in this day. It's terribly unfortunate, but there are several kinds of Christians that actually mess up the word Christian, despite its biblical roots. Uh, one kind happens to be the my way political Christian. Uh, the truth is, is that there are nations on the earth that have Christian parties that have launched wars against Muslims and engaged in the typical political tactics that have very little to do with the Christian faith. Germany and Lebanon are just a couple, and we recently had a um, uh, very sad uh, anniversary of uh, bombing and war and genocide in Serbia by the Christian Serbian army. So there, there are some that have done that. That's not typically an American difficulty or problem, but there are some that have some awareness of international affairs that uh, make this profoundly difficult. By the way, I want to say to you, my mention of the Christian Democratic Party in Germany no way implies a violent nature to them. But then there is the no way surprising Christian. In other words, there's no way that you're a Christian. In other words, the lifestyle choices and choices between uh, Monday and Saturday are such that you become surprised this person has any kind of religious practice on Sunday. And there is enormous distance. Uh, one of the recent difficulties that have arisen that have become rather popular are Christians who one day on their Facebook page will quote Bible verses and the next day will fuss at someone with the grossest profanity. Then there is the kind of Christian that is a not-me junior Christian. There is no way in the world you would ever expect me to engage in any kind of serious service or ministry. Uh, they see pastor and staff and missionaries and others as playing in the major leagues against the Braves and the Falcons and the Hawks, but they are in the peewee arena in the league, and really there's no way in the world that they would ever consider themselves serving in serious ministry. And then there is the name-only nominal Christian, which is a redundancy, of course. But th these may have had some childhood involvement and in periodic involvement here, there, and yon, but um, no sustained involvement. Uh, they would name themselves as Christian because they're not Muslim or they're not Jewish. Then there is the final, and that happens to be the authentic Christian, that is described in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And what I'd like to do this morning is this. Instead of abandoning the word Christian, I'd like to rehabilitate it and make use of it because it is a biblical term used at least three times in the New Testament for 
those who belong to Jesus and manifest it in their life. And we find the first use of it, in fact, in Acts chapter 11. Uh, The word Christian in English is much like the word Christian in Greek. Uh, There is the word Christ, and then there is a suffix placed on it. I-A-N in the English and another suffix in the Greek language. And that suffix, the end of the word, after the word Christ, uh, indicates possession, belonging to, affiliated with, zealous for. In fact, it was used of those who were intense about supporting uh, Caesar Augustus. They were, con- they were considered those who, were those who acted in his interest. Uh, in other words, they were partisans for Augustus. Those who are Christian in the biblical sense, authentic Christian, are those who are partisans for Jesus Christ. They belong to him. They are deeply concerned and interested in his interest. They live for him, and they are bound to him forever and forever. Christ possesses them. They are a distinct, identifiable group. They belong to the King, Jesus Christ, and they are partisans for him. Now, this does imply redemption, and it also implies the lordship of Christ. In in, in that they belong to Jesus Christ, they have been purchased by His blood. They belong to Him only by His grace, and then they are surrendered to His lordship. They do His bidding. They do His will. They walk with Him. And in Acts chapter 11, Luke uses the case of the Antiochian Christians where the term Christian is first used, and describes the marks that mark them as those who belong to Jesus. They are indeed authentic Christians. Beginning in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, the text says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word, but to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had come and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians and Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed, the, showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, I've got good news for you. If you are not authentically Christian today, there is good news. You can begin to be authentically Christian today when you center yourself on what Jesus Christ values. Now, I want to make a real, very, uh, very important point of clarification here. 
you do not get right with God and uh, establish a place in heaven with the hope of heaven and eternal life by acting as an authentic Christian. Oh no, no more than an apple produces the apple tree from which it comes. Oh no, first you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ and He begins to bear this fruit through you. That's the order. And that's what the Scripture teaches. And so anyone who does grow into an authentic Christian cannot take personal credit for it. There's no room for self-righteousness, any bravado, beating of the chest, or personal celebration. It is all the act of God when Christ comes into the heart and life. And Jesus produces authentic Christianity in every person in whom He dwells. Well, how is it then that we can identify ourselves, anyone, as authentically Christian. Well, there are several marks in the text. One, an authentic Christian is mission-centered. The one who belongs to Jesus Christ is mission-centered. I'm afraid that there are some who believe that their mission is to be part of a church where a mild-mannered pastor preaches mild-mannered messages to a mild-mannered people hoping they'll become more mild-mannered. I would say to you that might be helpful in a society of Cleons and Romulans and other aliens if you're living in the Star Trek world. But it is hardly adequate for this world. Now that's no license to develop the personality of an atomic bomb, of course, or to be sweet and kind at all points. But there is, when it comes to Jesus Christ, in authentic Christianity, an intense commitment and yieldedness to the mission of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Swiss theologian Emil Brunner said that the church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. He goes on to say, where there's no mission, there's no church. And where there's no mission or church, there is no faith in Jesus Christ. And I think he's entirely correct, and that surfaces here in the text. When Jesus Christ got a hold of these who repented and placed faith in Him, We find the great fruit in verse number 19. There were some that left Jerusalem who came to Antioch at the end of verse 19 who preached the word, but to no one but the Jews only. Well, there are others that came along and they got concerned about those that were beyond the ethnic and cultural boundaries of the Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene. And when they came to Antioch, they went beyond the ethnic and religious Jews to some other Jews who were Greek in culture and in many ways, except for their Sabbath observance, you probably could not tell the difference between them and the Gentiles, except their Sabbath observance and their lifestyle. And so it says, they came to the Hellenist in verse 20, preaching the Lord Jesus, God's hand was on them, and many of them turned to the Lord. There is that kind of impulse in authentic Christianity, where what Jesus Christ did and the early church did, Issues and ushers forth simply because of the presence and the grace of God in Christ. And so we can no more imagine an authentic Christian without mission any more than we can imagine fire without burning or water that is not wet. It is something germane to authentic Christianity. But there's a second thing. The authentic Christian is not only mission-centered, but grace-centered. I remember at the beginning of my senior year in high school, Somehow, I stumbled into a humanities course. It was the top-level English course in our school. What in the world I was doing in there with that group of intelligent people, I have no idea. But my way, I made my way in with a number of other kids from my youth group and a number of others who were zealous for Christ, 
And we discovered early on that there were three students, actually by their own confession, that were entirely atheist in the class. Well, it was a free-flowing class where there was an awful lot of discussion and there was very little lecture. In fact, it was like a doctoral seminar. And I struggled through it and I basically sat in the corner and didn't say much during that time except when there was an opportunity to exalt Jesus Christ. And I might say something and someone else from our youth group might say something and a Christian kid across the room might say something. And by the end of the year, there were no more atheists. Not because they'd been expelled, but because they'd all converted. And my pastor was able to baptize a couple of them. And I remember one young man by the name of John Lyons. John came to a revival service that we were holding in our little church. And John um, was uh, one of the atheist young men. And John was withdrawn, and he was distant, and uh, sometimes antagonistic. And John was uh, quite suspicious of everything that we thought and what we uh, believed in, and oftentimes would voice his opinion in class, which was the proper environment for it. But I don't know how in the world it happened, but one of the kids in our youth group invited John to this revival service. Now, you have to understand, the evangelist that week was not with it. Uh, He was not a hipster by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he was from South Georgia by way of Oklahoma. What a marvelous cultural combination for a West Coast atheist to hear from, right? And uh, quite frankly, he was rather intense and, and I think really on the West Coast profoundly culturally irrelevant. But one night John came and he returned the next night and he asked me as I passed by him, as I was trying to greet some that were there, he said, uh, David, let me ask you a question. He said, how can I know that I've been saved? And the young man asking me that question was a new person. And I said, look, the Bible promises if you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ and ask Him to save you, He will. And he said, well, I went home last night after the services and I did that. And he didn't have to tell me that. He was wearing it all over himself. Instead of being antagonistic, he was now believing. Instead of doubting and suspicious, he was trusting And instead of of being alienated, John was engaged. His life changed, and he, he demonstrated that for the course of the rest of the year until I lost contact with him. Beloved, that's what we find here in the text. Verse number 21 through 23. In fact, verse 23. Barnabas came to this church in Antioch, having been dispatched by the church at Jerusalem, and he saw the grace of God in their lives. Something marvelous had erupted in their hearts and lives, and they were different and they were new people. Now, you know what grace is, don't you? Grace is what God gives to people that exceeds their merit and what they earn. Grace is what God gives to people to meet their need, and it exceeds their need. Grace is what God gives to those who trust Him that meets the the task before them but goes beyond their ability. It's always an abundant and excessive part of the personality of God you've got sin, God abounds in grace. If you've got uh, wickedness, God surpasses all of that. If you need mercy, God meets that need and He goes beyond what you need. And that is always the case with the grace of God. God always gives more than what we will ever need. And those who follow Jesus Christ trust that and trust that alone. I know of one man who went to listen to the crusade evangelist Mordecai Ham some 75 years ago. And he went with the intention of heckling the evangelist. That kids in the high school were making fun of the evangelist as he was holding a tent crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. They were ridiculing him because he was rather severe. He was a trained attorney and he would cross-examine the audience is what he would do. 
and pile up evidence to prove their guilt and point to the only hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of the teenagers in the high school uh, were provoked by that. And this young man heard about it, and he and his friend decided they were going to go to the crusade one night, and they were going to heckle the evangelist from the back of the crowd. But when they arrived, every seat was taken up but a couple seats in the choir loft. And his parents were sitting on the front row. And so he and his friend made his way up into the choir loft, and instead of heckling the evangelist, they listened. And during the invitation that Mordecai Hanum extended, Billy Graham turned his heart and life over to Jesus Christ. Now, is that not an ironic conversion story? Precisely what happened. The man that would spend his life in crusade evangelists and be criticized by more than any other would indeed uh, start his life with the intention of heckling another evangelist. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what God does. And what I want to say to you is, is that the next Billy Graham, because of the grace of God, the next Billy Graham may have closed the bars last night and may be recovering from a hangover this morning. And that is the grace of God. God is able to take someone who has plumbed the depths, embarrassed themselves, their family, their God, wrecked their conscience in 10,000 ways, lift them up, put a song in their mouth, and turn them into people who trust the grace of God. That's what he's able to do. And so authentic Christianity is mission-centered and grace-centered, but it's also Bible-centered, and boy, it needs to be. The average American owns at least three Bibles. 90% of Americans have at least one, but only 45% of regular church growers read the Bible at least once a week. 20% of churchgoers never read it. And only 67% of Americans believe heaven is real. 45% believe there are many ways to get there, including 20% of evangelicals, despite what Jesus said when he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jerome, the early church father, said, Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Jesus Christ. Erasmus, though, the 16th century uh, morning star of the Reformation, said about the Bible, he said, These holy pages will give you Christ in an intimacy so close he would be less visible if he stood before your eyes. Such is the power of the Word of God. And there in the Word of God, Jesus unveils himself in majesty and in glory. We need to be a Bible-centered people. That's authentic Christianity. And Paul and Barnabas knew this. In verse number 23, Barnabas encouraged them. Uh, all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord because all can when they're taught the Word of God. In verse number uh, 24, many are added. Verse 25, he seeks Saul. And this is Paul's first mission. He's been about 10 years in Tarsus, silent, reforming his thinking, ready for his uh, missionary service. He finds him and he brings him back to Antioch in verse 26. And it was then that for a whole year they assembled with the church and they taught a great many. There was a teaching ministry early on. God's grace was there. The Holy Spirit was there. But that did not eradicate the need for a fervent, zealous teaching ministry. The authentic Christian, authentic Christianity is Bible-centered. And I, I want to make very clear, I, I, I plead more. And Scripture pleads for more than mere knowledge of the Scripture, although that's an excellent starting point and we can't begin anyplace else. But what the scripture pleads for is not only a knowledge of scripture but also the same disposition towards the scripture the same mood towards the scripture the same attitude towards the scripture that jesus christ himself demonstrated 
And beloved, I would say to you, if Jesus Christ loved and believed and taught the Word, who are we not to? Are we better than Him? Do we know something about the Bible? Do we know something about God that Jesus Christ did not know? Is that why some Bibles have enough dust on their cover to write the word foolish across them? Oh no, Jesus Christ is the epitome, the high, lifted up, holy, and exalted one. And when God came in flesh in Jesus Christ, He was a Bible student and a Bible teacher and a Bible preacher is who Jesus Christ was. Authentic Christianity then is Bible-centered. But then authentic Christianity is also church-centered. For a whole year, they assembled. Most commentators will tell you they did it daily, not merely two or three times a week. If you follow Christ, then, as an authentic Christian, I promise you Beach Haven Baptist Church will stand behind you. There'll be some other sweet souls in the community that will as well. But I must warn you, why? if you intend to follow Jesus Christ, you must know, that you will indeed develop many right friends, but you will also develop the right enemies as well. There will be some who will not appreciate your decision, some that are close to you, some that are distant, perfect strangers. Perhaps on a monthly or quarterly basis you will hear some kind of criticism. You run the risk of being misunderstood. You must know that. We're not going to soft-sell the life that follows Jesus Christ here. You must understand that. Therefore, you will need a soft place to land. And here you go. It is here. It is in one of His churches. So you've got to be very, very careful of chronic absenteeism from a local church. Now, I do realize there's some providential hindrances, everything from work to travel to um, health and that kind of thing. I certainly understand. Otherwise, Otherwise, chronic absenteeism can be an enormous challenge. In fact, you miss multiple opportunities if you're chronically absent. If you're chronically absent from a local church, you miss the opportunity to obey God because He commands it in the worship of His Son, and He's rather intense about that. You also miss the opportunity to serve. Well, I know you can serve outside the property of the church, and that's a good thing, and I hope you will. But if you're like most human beings, you serve people that you like and people who are just like you. When you come into the body of a local church and a local fellowship, you end up serving people who are diverse and different from you, and it stretches you. And then you miss the opportunity to give. Chronic absenteeism usually is not accompanied by good stewardship. You also miss the opportunity to, do, to, disciple, to dis- discipline yourself. You also miss the opportunity to intensify the presence of Christ in corporate worship, and then you miss the opportunity to keep yourself accountable. No one is so holy and pure they can live without accountability, and that is one of the great blessings of being part of a local church. When you're chronically absent, however, you miss the opportunity to reinforce those factors involved in authentic Christianity. It is difficult to walk with Jesus in faithfulness with chronic absenteeism. So the authentic Christian is church-centered, but then the authentic Christian is also giving-centered. Reminds me of two little boys in the attic of their grandparents' home, and they found some of their grandfather's military and war paraphernalia. In the military, their grandfather wore a sword, and one little grandson picked it up and said, every time I see granddaddy's sword, I want to fight for my country. And the other little boy said, every time I see his wooden leg, I just want to go home. (laughs) In authentic Christianity, there is all of the former and none of the latter. 
The one who authentically belongs to Jesus Christ desires to give his or her life away to the Messiah's name and his kingdom and his cause. They don't flinch. They don't back up. They may have some difficulties at times, but they get it right. Their disposition is all uh, together different from the prevailing mindset of the world. And that's what we found with the famine in verse 27 through 30. The Jerusalem church had sent the faith to Antioch by way of some other Christians in some other locations. But they came to Christ in Jerusalem and eventually ended up in Antioch where they brought them to the faith. And so those who first gave them the faith in Antioch found that the Antiochian Christians returned the blessing by helping them through a famine. The other way to put it is, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. And in a positive sense, that's exactly what happens here. They deposited the seed of the Christian faith among the Antiochians, and it came back in relief during their famine. The authentic Christian then is giving-centered. Authentic Christians share and participate in the giving spirit of Jesus, and not only that, it hurts and causes them heartache when they lack the opportunity to give. That's authentic Christianity. Now, with that, I want to apply this in just three ways and tell you what our text does for us this morning. The first thing is this. Acts 11, 19-30 first defines our work. Authentic Christianity is not like a buffet where you may prefer the pork spare ribs over the tilapia and you get a choice. Authentic Christianity, the Christian faith, the life that follows Jesus, does not get to pick and choose what elements he or she will adopt. The truth is, you must consume everything on the plate he puts before you, or you can't have him. Somebody might reply and respond, well, I don't being like told what to do. Then you can't have the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not for you. I don't mean to be confrontive or ugly, but you must understand God the Father is very serious about the lordship and rule of His Son, and He doesn't compromise. And He does not accommodate sinners at all. We take all there is of the faith in Jesus Christ, or we can't have any of it. We can fake, we can pose, we can be like some of the earlier Christians we described. But we cannot be authentically Christian and pick and choose what we will have and what we will not have when it comes to Jesus Christ. And if you don't like being told what to do, don't even consider the Christian faith. You can't have it. God won't let you have it. But when you come to the point where you surrender and say, Dear God, I take your son just as he is, and I embrace everything he is before I know what it will require of me, then you have the ear of the Heavenly Father but not before then. You have to understand, this defines our work. And really what we've done here with the mission-centeredness and the grace-centeredness, the Bible-centeredness, the church-centeredness, and the giving-centeredness, what we've done here is that we have actually described the Lord Jesus, have we not? And whenever we come to Christ, you must know the Father begins a work in you and in me that he, uh, from which He will not relent. He'll not back up from it at all. Oh no, He begins to recreate us in the image 
of Jesus Christ. And so there is no rest on this earth from the moment we give ourselves to Christ to the very end. Through failures, through difficulty, through doubts, through troubles and woes, the Father continually presses us and shapes us and sometimes He wounds us to bring us to the point where we are just like Jesus. Hey, did you know that when someone invited you to Christ the first time? (laughs) Well, you know now. That's the life to which He's calling you. And if you're willing for someone to tell you what to do and to define your work, then you may come. And you can come today. But there's a second thing. Not only does it define our work, but it also predicts our future. Young Christians, and even some old, sometimes struggle. And they worry, will I be faithful to the end? Am I going to embarrass my God, my family, myself, my church? Can I get through? I would say to you that if you're relying on your own strength, the answer is a patent, firm, flat no. You couldn't do it on your own. But if you lean on Christ and walk by faith, God says He's going to get you through. And there will be a successful completion to this mission and journey. He does it every time. Philippians 1.6, uh, uh, the apostle wrote, I am confident of, the, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you shall complete it. And that's what God does. God starts this journey with Christ, and it is His power and His grace that fuels it and brings it to completion. There will be a successful completion. Friend, you're going to make it. If you authentically trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you will not be able to resist it, and you will not frustrate it. That's the purpose of God. But then, this text also tests our confession. The most important question you can ask yourself in this hour is, Am I an authentic Christian? Am I? Do I experience an increasing love for these elements here? Is my trust in grace growing? Is my love for the mission of Christ, is it it growing? Is my love for His church and His Word and for giving of myself and giving of my resources, is that growing? Does it, it cause me to ache? Does it hurt me internally when these things are not part of my life? If I am an authentic Christian, I am growing in affection for authentic Christianity and the practice of these elements. If I merely confess Christ without these elements, then I'm merely a poser. It tests our confession. So let me ask you, what what is it that's keeping you from authentic Christianity? Is it worth rejecting Christ as He is to gain what you've got by resisting authentic Christianity? Whatever's keeping you from it, I've got one word for you that will help you today. But I need to alert you. The word will sound to you, most likely, like the word vegetable sounds to small children. But the word is like vegetables and that they're very good for you. And that is the word repent. Peter said in Acts 3.19, Repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that's what he promises. Well, what does it mean to repent? Well, it means to turn away in repulsion against what keeps you from an authentic walk with Jesus Christ. My wife does that every time she sees a snake. 
We've hiked some and we've seen king snakes, as innocuous as they are, and she has a revulsion against them. She has a revulsion against rubber snakes in the toil aisle of department stores. She has a revulsion against snakes that appear on television. She has a revulsion against the word snake. Now, don't any of you mischievous people out there get any ideas, all right? But she is revulsed by snakes, unusually so. I'm not a big fan of them myself. I don't intend to have one as a pet or anything else. But I think the best snake is a dead snake. Thank you. And that's how it is with snakes. What I want to say to you is, is that I want, the, the, when we repent, the Scripture is teaching us to have as much revulsion against those things that keep us from Christ as we do of snakes. The same revulsion. If you're at that point, you can come. You can come to Jesus Christ. If you're not, let your heart break and cry out to God and plead for Him for that kind of heart. Because without repentance, there's no hope. And there is no future. We'll give you the opportunity today. If your heart is where you're willing for Jesus to tell you what to do, if you're revolted by the hindrances to authentic Christianity in your own life, you can come and we're going to give you that opportunity today. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And let me pray with you and we're going to ask you to come. Lord Jesus, you are the master of truth and light and you've not left us to stumble in the darkness, O oh God, especially with this issue. You know nothing of ambiguity or muddy waters. You are truth, you exalt the truth, you speak truth, and thank you for delivering truth in your word on this most important issue. And dear God, we need your word on this day because deception is so easy to come by. Our hearts seek it, our enemy and his crowd propagate it, so please intervene by your spirit in this moment and do the great work of conversion by your grace. I pray, O oh God, you would enlighten our friends today to view anything short of authentic Christianity as a serpent to flee instead of something to be embraced or defended. And would you make that happen in this time? Now, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we sing, our staff will be here in the front. We want to ask you to come and share with them your spiritual need, and we'll help you. You come. You come. It's a time of desperation. You may know nothing but doubt and fear, but Christ invites you to come. You come.